Saturday, July 3rd, 1971, James Douglas Morrison, poet and lead singer of The Doors, died at the age of 27. Due to his poetic lyrics, distinctive voice and rebellious personality, the self-proclaimed Lizard King established himself as one of the most iconic and influential frontmen in history. Without an autopsy, his cause of death remains shrouded in mystery to this day. This episode is on the Mr. Mojo Rising, the Lizard King, as Gabby called him. And I guess before we start, we always do our quote. Oh, I can't wait. This is my favorite part. So this person loved this philosopher, Nietzsche, and Nietzsche wrote that the individual has always had to struggle to keep from being overwhelmed by the tribe. If you try it, you will be lonely often and sometimes frightened, but no price is too high to pay for the privilege of owning yourself. And this person's dad, um, Steve, said this about his son. He would say that his son owned himself. Mm -hmm. He was true to himself, which is why they put an inscription in the Greek on his gravestone. and I think that James Douglas Morrison, he owned himself. He was true to himself. He definitely did. And he lived and died by that creed, I think. Um, through his poetry, his songwriting, his performance. Um, and as our rocker babies will learn about him, he said yes to life with mm-hmm. like an all or nothing attitude. That's what made him incredible. Yeah. No, he really did in the short time that he was the here. Yeah. I was going to say there. <laughs> here, <laughs> here, there. Here, there, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. I mean, because like Sam, I think even like Elliot to a certain degree, he possessed like this magnetic mystique about him mm-hmm. that made him irresistible to everyone. And like the others too. I mean, he, um, for those of you... Who don't know who we're talking about yet? <laughs> exactly. Jim Morrison. I think, um, like Sam Cooke and Elliot Smith, his work and his his creations like transcended time. Like I remember as a teenager, you know, Jim Morrison was just as relevant that he probably was to my dad's generation. I mean, in a lot of ways, I was super lame, and I, like I'd always be like, "Oh yeah, I found this band." Like I discovered The Doors, I discovered Led Zeppelin, Dad. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's basically the attitude I had yeah. in 1990. <laughs> I can't say that because I didn't know enough about him. Um, I knew he was special, though. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because you kept seeing him in the lexicon, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you see him on TV, and I didn't really. Um, get the full scope of him. I did hear 
um, Lauren Hill's Miseducation of Lauren Hill mm-hmm. and it's Light My Fire. She does a song oh, that yeah. makes me now think about when I was doing the outline on this and I heard Jim Morrison and looked at all his videos. I'm like, boom. So he's, he, you like you, who's, you know, a recording artist and a music genius. He, you know, you understand the beauty of someone like a Jim Morrison before I truly understood him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of grateful because that's what I love about this show is that it's teaching me about all of these um, amazing artists that, that have just kind of, kind of went over my head so to speak. And then I'm kind of rediscovering Some of them I'm rediscovering, like Sam, who I mm-hmm. adore. And we got more coming up, like Lisa Lopez next. Yeah, that's going to be amazing. Um, and people that just, you know, but then there are the ones that are the jewels, the, you know, the um, diamond in the roughs mm-hmm. that really stand out the test of time. And I feel like through this, I'm getting to know artists that I knew their music because I know the music of a lot of artists, but I'm not, I don't always go into super fandom that I know everything, but I'll know songs and I'll mm. know. And so I think that's, what's really cool. You really get to know, get to know the artists more too. And, and like true. you had said in a, in a previous, um, uh, Oh, which one was it? It was one of your amazing quotes, Ooh. but it was about the start. Like when you get to know someone's story, like anybody can be interesting, Sam and Cook, I think that's. Yeah. I mean, and clearly we're picking very interesting people. These yeah. people just kind of are pretty interesting right out of the gate. <laughs> totally. I mean, that's the beauty. I think well, why you and I came together is about for the 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 ones that are listening to this now. That really, um, I think it's. I think we kind of came together to inspire people, to kind of like yes, you hear about these uh, in irresistible, amazing artists, but I kind of want them to be inspired to kind of be irresistible and amazing in who they are in their oh, own I skin. Oh, I love that. I definitely feel inspired by all these guys. Me too. I mean... Me too. I enjoy talking about them. Um, so I guess we can just jump right into Mr. Jim Morrison, Mr. Mr. Jim. Lizard King. Um, he was the eldest child of Steve and Clara Morris- Morrison, and he was born on December 8th. Uh, 1943 in Melbourne, Florida, and his parents would give him two younger siblings eventually, Anne and Andy. Um, He was a Navy brat. I mean, they traveled all around. His father was a career Navy man. In fact, when his father was 47 years old, he he would be made the youngest admirable Admiral, I should say, not admirable. <laughs> Maybe he was an admirable <laughs> admiral ad- too. <laughs> he, was a, uh, he died admiral. in 2008, yeah, ever in, in the Navy. Um, they were stationed all over the country, which I think kind of played into Jim's personality, and you'll probably be able to, to understand it. But, you know, he was stationed all over the country throughout his childhood and teen years. Um, and when he was four years old, Michelle, he experienced, in his words, one of the most important moments of his life. Wow. To remember that is amazing. So what exactly. was that moment? I want to know. That moment was, well, okay. His father was stationed outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And one day while they were riding in the car, Jim was about four, as I can say, as I said. Um, and they came across an overturned truck. And in Jim's mind, he saw an injured and dying Pueblo 
Indians lying on the asphalt. So Jim started tearing up and crying. Mm -hmm. His father got out. He stopped the car because he wanted to know. He's, you know, upset as well, according Mm -hmm. to Jim. He got out of the car to go help the situation. And his dad came back and returned to the car to make sure everything was okay. And as they drove off, Jim became very agitated. He sobbed uncontrollably. He kept saying over and over through his tears that they're dying. And years later, Jim would say that that as his father's car pulled off, the Native American soul um, died and it passed into his body. And he wrote a song about it called Peace Frog. Oh, yeah. Now, his sister sister and father verified the incident, but it's quite different. You know, they say that the guy was just sitting on the side of the road bleeding. He was alive. Mm -hmm. Um, But Jim took that literally. It was really weird. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, I don't doubt things. You know how I feel about all mystical, magical experiences. Obviously, he was, um, you know, really torn up about that. Yeah, that's that's pretty traumatizing, though. You know, and and so around the age of 12, he became what all of them were. Elliot, um, everybody, you know, Elliot, Sam Cooke, all of them were a voracious reader. He read books. He read, you know, mad magazines. He loved to draw. He loved us. He was a sketch, great sketch Mm. drawer, actually. Are you a sketch drawer? No. It's so funny. I was just talking about that today. I was like, I feel like I can whittle most things into a three-dimensional form except for drawing i was not i was not given well that you're better gift. than me because i got stick figures to show for my no stuff, mine's so. stick figures too oh, yeah, i could i could make a chair or something he but... would do sketch drawings on nasty stuff <laughs> like to his friend you know because he was a teenage boy so mm. he'd do some little nasty stuff like pp drawings and mm. stuff like that you know he was all over the place but one interesting fact that I did read about Jim, which I love, was that he would sit in his in his room in the evenings and he would copy down paragraphs of the books, you know, from books that he really loved into a spiral notebook. He kind of did that mm. most of his life. I wow. mean, he filled up notebooks and journals with his thoughts and his daily observations and his poetry. And he loved, like, the book On the Road uh, by Kiriak, which Gabby will tell everybody about. One of Jim Morrison's favourite books was On the Road, the second novel by American writer Jack Kerouac, based on the travels of Kerouac and his friends across the United States. The novel, published in 1957, is a Roman au with many key figures in the beat movement, such as William S. Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg, represented by characters in the book, including Kerouac himself as the narrator. The characters live life against a backdrop of jazz, poetry and drug use. It is considered a defining work of the beat and counterculture generations. Time magazine shows the novel as one of the 100 best English language novels from 1923 to 2005. In addition to influencing Jim Morrison, On the Road has been an influence on other poets, writers and musicians, including Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, Jerry Garcia and Hunter S. Thompson. But his sister said that he would learn a new word, and then he would write a whole story around it. Ah, oh, that's so fabulous. I mean, it's crazy. You know, I, I wished I could do that. I love words, too. Mm-hmm. But it's it, like, moved me when I read that about him. That's just such a great. creative mind, though, to, yeah. even do, to even think of doing that. Yeah, like 12 awesome. years old. Mm-hmm. 
You know, S was so brilliant. I mean, in his teen years, he did exhibit, uh, you know, a lifelong pattern, um, which most artists do, which he had a resentment toward authority. Mm-hmm. He said, like, you can't yeah. do that. He'd do it. Because you said he can't do it. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't. I think a lot of people that kind of step outside of the regular box, they don't want to be told what to do. Otherwise, exactly. they'd be in that box. Right. Even though they might know, like, yeah. But when they told it, it yeah. becomes a whole different ballgame. Oh, he totally. Like that, that joker, he was... He was thrown out of a theater for being rowdy. When they told him to shush, he was a handful. He hassled mm. it. He hassled his mom and his teachers. He he came to class late, and he would tell an elaborate story about being held up by robbers <laughs> or being kidnapped. Um, you know, he was quite That's the storyteller. That's kind story of funny, though. I feel like I would like a student like that. Oh, yeah. You, <laughs> being a music teacher, you would appreciate it. I would so like, you'd be like, like The more elaborate, the better. I'm like, you're yeah. full of shit, but carry on. Yeah, you would say, I want to hear more. <laughs> Me, I'd be like, go sit your ass down. And I'd be probably mad at him the whole time. You would admire it and go, you know what? That was pretty creative. I'd be like, that was good. I, that was good. And a complete fabrication. And he would love it. you. He would love you <laughs> just for that because, you know, it's the teachers that would be probably like myself that would be the hard asses that he would probably be like, mm, and dig into uh, so much, you know. He was a trip, but, you know, out of all of that, what's so amazing about Jim is that he maintained a B-plus average all of throughout his school years. And he was on the honor roll a couple of times with minimal effort. I mean, Mm -hmm. his IQ was 149. That's pretty high, isn't it? Yes. He's a genius. He was near genius. I mean, he scored above average on all of his college board exams. But, you know, when he got into high school, he was very charming because he would approach you, Michelle, and he would bow and he would recite lines from a sonnet. Oh, that's amazing. From, uh, you know... William Shakespeare, Shakespeare, I call him Shakespeare, <laughs> Shakespeare, that's the, that is the margarita, the Shakespeare, Shakespeare that he's memorized, <laughs> that's like the cover band of Shakespeare, I know, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> but he memorized everybody, and he would bow, and then he'd bow and walk away from you, Michelle, uh, see that, this, this would work on me for sure, I'd like to say this would work on high school me, this would work on today me. It would work on every today me. I know every girl, including Gabby, who's who's Gabby's already in. She's Gabby's got her door shirt on. Yeah, she's representing. Um, He loved his English classes. That's the one thing. I mean, years later, his senior year English teacher would talk about how Jim's book reports on different books were so. out there and that she had never heard of most of them and she would she thought he was making stuff up so she would send another teacher to the library of congress because i think he went to george washington high school i think it was out of virginia or washington one of them where his dad was stationed because he was a, a navy brat and the teacher would check to see if that book existed at the <laughs> library of congress and it did it all did. of them existed that he did book reports on he was That's that brilliant awesome, you know, he was what a, a freak great. just to be like, you know what, I'm going to stump you. I, I appreciate that. That's and awesome. now you understand probably, probably we kind of can all, all understand now the beginning of why he has such a rebellious nature. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I feel a lot. I see this even with, um, I've seen this with some of my students. Like mm. the brilliant ones are often the most difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're often like teaching a wild animal 
And you kind of, but a lot of that comes from not being stimulated by what mm. you're trying to teach. And so he probably did feel that way if, you know, maybe high school curriculum wasn't his thing because mm. also he didn't, he wasn't here for that long yet to like pack it all in. That's true. That's very true because, you know, if you think about it, even with your students and even because you're an artist yourself, you know, it's like when you... I think also with artists is that when they find their path, I think he knew his path early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is, that's amazing. You know, I think he did. I think most artists know. Sometimes they don't listen to their heart and they kind of go and become lawyers, like who we were talking mm -hmm. about beforehand. We won't talk about who that person was, but they were a lawyer and they became a writer, where they listened to their calling of being a writer. Mm -hmm. um, that's and awesome. I, they listened. Exactly. Mm -hmm. He listened. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are the ones that make a difference in the world mm -hmm. when they do listen early on. I think I admire that, that you listen to things early on in your life and know that you just can't, for the life of you, like even Sam Cooke, go that way. I have to be a singer or a writer. You know, I have to do this. And it's a hard road to travel. What are you talking about? It's so easy. Yes, of course. It's easy. Kind of like Robert being an Frost. artist is like the easiest thing you could do. Oh, turnkey operation right here. <laughs> exactly, because even was it Robert? Is it Robert Frost, the poet, who said, "The road less traveled, always travel mm. the road less traveled." It's bumpy. It's crazy, it's but you nuts. might get somewhere pretty. Who knows? You always get somewhere pretty because, or see something pretty along the way. <laughs> even see something pretty along the way because. Even people like myself who go corporate or whatever, there's an admiration to someone who listens to their heart. Like, just like that song by um, Leanne, Leanne, what's her name? Um, it's I Hope You Dance. It's called I Hope You Dance. I know Dance. a song it's country. it is. Who's the one it's who's... country. I don't know if it's Leanne, but she had a song called I Hope You Dance. I love that. I know what song you're talking about. And I'm it not talks gonna... about this road mm. that you have. Don't take the road, you know, take the hard road. I think it is, um, yes, it is, I hope you did, Leanne Womack. Oh, yes, I knew it was And she talks about not taking the road, um, you know, take don't take the easy road. Take the hard road and become who you're meant to be because you need to dance. And that was I don't Lizard even know King. what the easy road looks like. Then that's why you're on the best, <laughs> you're on the best path. You're on the right road, you know, instead of someone <laughs> like me who discovers it later on in life. Um... But, you know, it's funny because um, when he graduated high school, he enrolled in Florida State University and he shared like a three bedroom house with like five other students. And as usual, he began testing authority and his roommates and he he backed a borrowed car into a pole. <laughs> he drank his roommates beer and their food, ate their food. He wore their clothes without asking. <laughs> And insisted on silence, this is brilliant, insisted on silence whenever Elvis Presley's music was played on the radio. And he would I sit down in that. front of the radio. Yes, he would tell them to be quiet. In other words, shut the hell up. That's awesome. So they're like, what the hell we got here? We got an alien here in this, um, in, in our dorm room. That's and fantastic, though. He continued writing those extensive journals. A lot of them he lost, by the way, by the oh, way. I just want to say. That's too but bad. But midway through college, and much to his parents' chagrin, he transferred to UCLA. They were pissed about it. They were like, why are you going out to California? And um, not before he was arrested for petty larceny. Um, 
he was trying to steal a cop's helmet. You haven't broken the law, right? Me? Yeah. Uh, no. I, I would love it if you did. Cause then no, you I'm trying to think. No, no, no. I've only I've been pulled over and then I freak out. But that's not for breaking the yeah, law. Yeah, that's not that's... breaking the law. No, he did that with pleasure. Um, and... I don't think I've broken that. I have to think about it. No. You did Have you? No. No, I got I'm too scared over. of like Me too. I have to get Which makes you unique because you're like him. You're an artist. You you know, he just was like I don't wanna go to jail. He ain't care. <laughs> He's he disturbed the peace and he resisted arrest and he had public drunkenness, by the way, on top of all that. And he was able to get out of it without even telling his parents. He used one of his professors at the pro, at the university to help him get out of it. I oh mean my God, I kind of love him that much more. I know, right? I know. And so a brat, but he was a smart brat and I appreciate a smart brat. So are you. It <laughs> <laughs> keeps coming back. Boom. <laughs> um, but you're not the brat. You're not the brat. He was quite a the bit of a brat. He was a nor- was. Navy brat. He was a Navy brat. You weren't the Navy brat. Your dad was a lawyer. Oh god, no, 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 not that kind of brat. I yeah. mean just brat. He. he was he was um I think his thing was like he went a step beyond than most artists. Like he went a step mm-hmm. beyond with there's some sense of it I gotta say this personally that when I was reading his story there was a sense of entitlement to me about Jim Morris mm. that I couldn't see Sam Cooke doing you I think know, Sam, Sam Cooke had a little bit more he had confidence but more of a he had the minded business he had to mind it because but he, it was a difference I feel like he I feel like Jim Morris I mean I'm guessing again mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. he seems like a little bit how do I put this in words you know, like, not more ego-driven, but a little bit more... Maybe so. Yeah. But it was a freedom of ego-driven, because Sam Cooke didn't have that type of freedom mm-hmm. to be public drunkenness. I mean, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That would ruin him. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, Jim Morrison was like, whatever, that emboldens me. Um, and he did transfer to UCLA, which kind of made Jim who he was. You know what I mean? But I can't even imagine him not being out in LA. That would just I know like he, he was like meant needed for it. To, he needed to be here, he especially at that time. It. And Venice. I mean he was meant mm-hmm. for LA. So it was brilliant that he listened to his gut and was like, I don't wanna stay here. I wanna to go to UCLA and he transferred to UCLA during like the golden age, mm-hmm. you know, the where the faculty members were major directors like Stan Stanley Kramer. And he was Stanley Kramer for our Rocka Babies was the director of movies like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with mm-hmm. like Sidney Poitier, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, and the Defiant ones with Marlon Brando. I mean Francis Ford Coppola yeah. was a student during this time. Like that's insane. Yes. Just like but it is like those special those special times, right. and he came out at a special time. Mm. He came out when, you know, the Sunset Strip was like it, what like it, Gary it was, said. Yeah, it was it was the hate. Like he, there's a certain element of of not a certain a complete element of destiny for him to come That's out. That's so yeah. true. That's so true because as we talked to Gary about um, the last time was that being at the right place at the mm-hmm. right time because he was right around Gary was 
on the Sunset Strip, as you said, yeah. with these guys. Um, and also for him to listen, like you said earlier, to listen. Because I remember, here I'm going to mention my good friend again, Oprah. She had once said, the luck favors the prepared. Mm. And it's like he listened to himself enough to be like, okay, I'm going to go to film school. It wasn't like I'm going to go out and become a massive influential rock star forever. Right. It was just like coming to L.A., doing that brought him to everything else. Totally, totally. He didn't hold back because I can think of myself. I would be like, mm, maybe not. Maybe I just need to listen to my parents. He was like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, and they didn't want him to go. And he went home for Christmas, you know, right when he, had, right before he had transferred, because he, he transferred in the middle of the year of 1964. So he went to Florida um, State University. I think it's Florida State. Yes, Florida State University. So those two semesters, so, you know, the fall, I guess a fall and winter, and then he moved out to uh, UCLA during the, you know, I guess the spring or maybe winter and spring. But he, he went to Christmas, he went home for Christmas, and I hate to say this, but this would be the last time he ever saw his parents. Ever? Ever. And this was nineteen six Christmas, 1964. Oh, that's so sad. You know, he started attending UCLA in 1965, and that's where he befriended May, Ray Manzarek. Wait, Ray Manzarek, his bandmate, his future bandmate. And, you know, Jim lived on the beach. He lived on top of a building. But, you know, he impressed Ray so much with his lyrics because he was a poet. He was writing poetry throughout this whole time that he started a band with Ray. Ray invited him in. And at the time, it was Ray and his brothers and a girl bass player named Patricia. Patricia Sullivan, yeah. And Ray even let Jim move in with him and his girlfriend, Dorothy. Um, And pretty soon, they acquired John Dinsmore, the drummer, and, you know, but the group of the, actually, Ray's group with his brothers and Patricia and John Dismore was first called Rick and the Ravens. I like and that name. Isn't that funny? Yeah, Rick and I the like Ravens. Rick and the Ravens. Rick and the Ravens. Maybe that was Ray's brother's name, Rick. But they recorded a demo of six songs, and the songs were rejected by every record company in town. And so... You know, but him, he and Ray still stayed together with uh, John Dinsmore, you know, and um, actually during this time, um, Jim met Pamela Curson, who was 18 at the time, mm-hmm. which would play a big role mm-hmm. in his life. Um, and so Ray's brothers, I guess I should say, Jim reread it like a book by Aldous Huxley, who's, who Gabby talks about, called the, it was titled The Doors of Perception. Aldous Huxley took the name of one of his most famous works, The Doors of Perception, from the English poet and printmaker William Blake's book entitled Marriage of Heaven and Hell, which in turn also inspired the name of The Doors. The book, written between 1790 and 1793, is probably the most influential of Blake's works. It is a series of texts written in imitation of biblical prophecy, which describes Blake's visit to hell and the exploration of the dynamic relationship between heaven and hell. The prose expressed Blake's own personal romantic and revolutionary beliefs. Like his other books, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell was published as printed sheets from etched plates containing prose, poetry and illustrations. The plates were then coloured by Blake and his wife Catherine. 
For centuries, the book has fascinated theologians, estheticians and psychologists. And it was based off of William Blake, a line from William Blake's book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And the line is, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite. Wow. And they took the doors of perception and they called it the doors. So great. Isn't that amazing? It's really that amazing. shows you how incredible he was. And so in mid-1965, you know, mid right after Jim met Ray, the brothers, Ray's brother and Patricia left the group, and then Robbie Krieger joined the group, and that's where the doors were born. That's when he came up with the name, and they, they started, um, you know, really taking over the world, so to mm. speak. But it didn't happen overnight. I mean, you know, Jim didn't have the best voice, but it was captivating, um, and he was confident. Mm -hmm. You know, he possessed kind of like that. We talked about the magnetism that kind of pulled everyone together. But his writing is, I think, what kind of was the glue, mm -hmm. and their musicianship. You know, yeah. Ray and. Robbie and John. It's funny that I wouldn't even think of his voice as not being the best voice because it's such a, he's a voice of the time. Like you close your eyes, you think Jim Morrison, you know mm. his voice immediately. And like to me, that's, that's a good voice regardless. Yes. Of, like there's no voice. question you can't, there's no other person that sounds like Jim Morrison mm. aside from Val Kilmer. And right, right. He, he did a bad, I mean, he I was he great, great in the movie. Job. He did a great job in the movie. Yeah. But I mean, he but was a, Jim. But he was being him. That's like the whole Exactly. Point, so. And he did a great job of possessing his essence, I oh, think. Oh, yeah. It's um, kind of ridiculous. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, like you said, his voice is so distinctive. Like, we talked about it in a previous um, podcast. I think when we were talking about Sam and how when he went under the name of Dale Cook mm -hmm. and you were saying that, you know, how can you only know him as Sam? Like that mm -hmm. voice was so like distinctive and it sets in your brain kind of like Jim. Yeah. And I feel like those are the ones like it'll be interesting to hear now, like 20 years from now, what's going to be remembered from this time. Cause there's certain mm -hmm. voices that you know immediately they're them. That's true. And then there's also a sea of other popular music that you, I mean, and you it's, that's been who. the case since the beginning of recording. You're right. That you're kind of like, I, I don't know who that is. Right. And then there's some people that you're like, oh, well, there's no question. Like that's, that's, that's Mariah Carey. Yeah, there's no question Mariah Carey. There's no question. I mean, Bruno Mars, you Bruno always know Mars, his voice. Bruno Mars, yes. And yes. There's, there is definitely voices of this time, but it's, it's just... Mm. There's some voices that aren't of this time. Like yeah, even songs. if they're popular right now, mm -hmm. you still like, like there's right. some mm -hmm. there's some songs that I'm like, I don't know. Right, <laughs> totally. You don't know who they are. You gotta, There's like, a lot you, of great ones. That's too, what Shazam so. is there for. You know what I mean? You'd be like, what? What's this? Um, but you're but right. I feel like, like Jim Eminem. Morrison was one of those, even if it wasn't technically, I mean, I don't even think of him as not, not being voiced. But yeah, his voice was otherworldly. You know, when I think about it, his voice was otherworldly. I, I feel mean, like he was a poet, like what you said, and that, and that also was that time. Like it was a perfect time, right, for poets. And he's singing what he wrote. So that must be, mm -hmm. you would know probably more than anybody, what that feels like to sing what you write. Because some people, like bless her soul, like Whitney Houston had the most distinctive, beautiful oh, voice. She's ridiculous. She, she made stuff voice. her own, though, too. Yes. I mean, I've done both. I've but sang she stuff didn't write. I, like, I've you sang stuff. Written. I've, I've written, uh, yeah, I sing what I write sometimes, and I also sing 
right. uh, other people's songs too if someone else has written it. I think you can embody any song. You just, I mean, I, it's like an actor playing mm. a character. So, because I think, I mean, Whitney, now that was ridiculous. It doesn't matter if she ever voice. wrote a word. That yeah. was like, she is like a. She piece encompassed of it. Yeah. yeah, she took something and encompassed it. But getting back to writing, singing stuff mm-hmm. that you write, how does that feel? When you well, sing I think you feel you so wrote. connected because it's just it's also too like you're you're pretty vulnerable if you are singing something it depending on what the song is but you know you're sharing the most of you mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're like with the theme that. song that you wrote you wrote our theme song <laughs> well I downloaded it from something I don't know <laughs> you you downloaded it from you know what the universe <laughs> it spoke to you like it did with him I mean he he had he possessed like an affinity for like dark and somber themes in his life. And I, think, I think that's why I liked him as a teenager. Yeah. I, mean, I still really like Jim Morrison's doors, but like as a teenager that, but he had such, it was, it was beautiful darkness. Mm, I still feel that way. Darkness. I'm like all happy sunshine and I love dark music. Yeah, me too. I just love the good me old sad too. song. We've talked about that in the yeah. previous podcast. Yeah, I do too. I mean, you know, the sad thing, I think that's probably where I got this from about his voice is he wrote a letter to his parents to let them know that he had joined the group. Remember, he never saw them again. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, and his father wrote back, because they were straight and arrow. You know, his dad was in the military, and his dad wrote back. And I, I even saw an interview on his dad, and his dad was like, you can't sing. And he reminded him that you didn't even finish the piano lessons that I gave you, that I, that I bought for you, you know. And I think it's kind of a crock. That's what oh, he that's said. That's so and, sad. Jim never wrote his parents again. I can see that being like, like I could see that being absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Like I can't imagine not having yeah. support. I have the total opposite. My parents are the greatest people on the planet. But right, I can't imagine like already being this like beautiful, sensitive soul that he mm-hmm. was, and then not having that support because right. he didn't finish piano lessons. Piano lessons yeah. suck. I hated piano lessons. Well, it was when just I was a his kid. dad. You're right. I mean, his mom. <laughs> I don't think probably felt the same way. Or his sisters, his sisters and brothers, he was close. Not not as close as he should have been, but, you know, his brother mm-hmm. saw him, as, you know. But, you know, he they were just straight-laced 1940s and 50s people, mm-hmm. you know, that were, like, straight-laced. Like, what? his dad was like, I didn't understand it, you know? I mean... The funny part was he was still such a young man at that time. Completely. Like, I mean, he was still basically a child when he's being told that. Yeah, and he didn't give a shit. He, the Good doors for rehearsed for, like, five days a week and I think that's them rehearsing as much as they did they jailed as a group you know mm-hmm. Jim was pretty shy on stage I mean um, they started um, you know I'll, I'll get to it but they even if they performed somewhere he would turn his back because he was a shy guy if he faced the audience he would kind of close his eyes and they got their first recording contract at Columbia which he admired because Jim admired um uh, Frank Sinatra. He thought he was a great vocalist, which he was. Mm-hmm. I mean, Frank Sinatra was a. Speaking of a distinctive voice, another Frank, yeah. Frank Sinatra. You know that's Frank undeniably him. Yeah, and um, they also kind of around this time decided that they would kind of share the royalties and publishing evenly. Even though I don't know if that's completely the case because there were lawsuits after he died. I just but. That's what I read, that they they had veto. I should say 
putting that aside, they each decided that they would have veto power. So if mm-hmm. one person said, you know what, I don't want to do that, then it would be killed. It, they didn't like go against each other. So as a group, they learned how to do veto power. If they, if one of them, even mm-hmm. just one, said no to something, doesn't matter if it was Jim or Ray or Robbie or John, it would be a no, um, wow, which I admire. And that's a great way to stay together, too, instead it of is. just having, like, a boss and a bunch of employees. Yeah, and I think that's what kind of helped the Beastie Boys stay together. Oh, you know, we Beastie talk about the Beastie Boys. Um, I think, I don't know if they had veto power, but it seemed like it was three people and they each had, mm-hmm. you know, even Stevens' voices. But that's know? a way to keep, you know, right. the trust and camaraderie. And right. It's not easy to be in a it's band not. or any partnership. It's right. just, it's not, right. it's not always the easiest thing, right. especially creative partnerships. Right. And, and you know they must have disagreed at some point. And I think that they respected, okay, mm-hmm. he's saying no. They might have argued their point or whatever, but it didn't turn into... I'm not, like in some bands, it turns into, I'm not going to speak to you again. Yeah, I mean, I was in a band with three people, and it was constantly, three is difficult, because it was always two against one, Mm -hmm. and there is, but it was, it was like, I mean, maybe you need. Did you guys have veto power, like if one said no, that was it? No, I mean, theoretically, but no. Yeah. No, it was, there was things that, luckily, I mean, we were fairly agreeable on things, Mm -hmm. but when it wasn't, it was often, and sometimes it wasn't even big deals. It was just, you know, you have three people, and it'd just be like... Passionate about stuff. Two, one, two, one, two, one. But that's, I mean... A band is like a marriage. It I, is. It's, it's a very intense... Else said. It's an intense, wonderful relationship. That's like, I loved being in bands. Right. And I What loved, did you like about being in I love the the kind of like the you against the world. My first band was my existence. It actually was. Like, it's... It was just... It became this little bubble that that's all that mattered was the band. And I still love that. And I, I haven't... I, I've been in, in um, musical partnerships since, but... Just that band feeling, especially right. that young band feeling. So it's you're like, good with collaborations. I love. I, think I to love be in a band. You got to really know how to collaborate. Well, so you think that you can. It's great to do stuff on your own, but it's also great to like anything. Mm-hmm. Like being able to when you're around different people, you see different perspectives. You you write things differently. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even having different people in the room, even if you come up with the lyrics, you're having those lyrics because that other person was there. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel that it's uh, like bouncing off of a. Yeah, I love collaboration. I mean, it's not for everybody, but I think mm-hmm. it's... I, I fully enjoy being in bands. I think that's why I like right. I like talking about other bands. <laughs> Yay. Yay. So, you know, in January 1966, they got a gig as the house band at an L.A. club called London Fog, which was like a, a dive club. Um, and they played... This is, this is brilliant because this makes me think of the Beatles. Um... Because the Beatles, when they, you know, before they became the Beatles, and that's with, um, you know, uh, before they became huge, they would go off to Germany and they played, like, for different periods of time in, uh, like, a, um, I forgot what type of club. It wasn't just a nightclub. It was a, a um, burlesque club, I think. And I think I didn't know this about the Beatles. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, they did. I, I read that in Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, because he talked about 10,000 hours. 
right, right. I'm like, I I read that book and I'm like, I'm like under the category of non-voracious reader. I'm a voracious reader of half books. Well, it's it's like, (laughs) but that's a voracious reader. That's quick. (laughs) But it's like, you know, he talked about 10,000 hours and that's Mm. what they did. I mean, no one showed up when they performed hardly. Um, They played from like 9 to 2 a.m. And they did five sets a night with 15 minute breaks each each hour, six nights a week. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah, each pay each member was paid. Uh, were paid five dollars each week night and ten dollars each on Fridays and Saturdays. That's pretty and, good though, when you think yeah. about it. That's like fifty bucks, right? No, there's not ten of them. What am I talking about? Right. No, they ten dollars on the weekend in the fifty. That's pretty good. Actually, it's fifteen dollars okay. per per member a week. Yeah, in the six, oh wait a minute, fifties night. Wait, you're right. So five, you're right. In the fifties, that's 60s. not terrible. Sixties. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Jim never really was a materialistic guy. He was, but it was small compared to like the whiskey a go go, which mm-hmm. was like, you know, fifty yards from them. Um, and sometimes I read, sometimes the guy didn't pay all the time. Like mm-hmm. sometimes he'd be like, if he had it. But they enjoyed that time because he had already written This Is The End. Oh, wow. And so they would hone all of their songs. These songs that they would put in these albums, they had honed a lot of them, or some of them at least, at this London Fog Club. They would sit and play for 10, 15 minutes one song, and they learned to gel. If there is any young musicians listening to this... Mm. Practice, mm. do your shit. Because I think of all the good, right. all the bands, like, and my close friends that are in great bands, mm-hmm. they rehearse and spend time and they do their shit. Like, when people just think, because now there's mm. this misconception to be like, oh, I'll just go in the studio, I'll sound awesome, and then, right. you know, I'm on tour, and there you have it. Like, that's just not, especially because I've worked with a lot of young kids that forget that you have to practice when you hear these great people doing that and I think of the great people in my life that do like everybody works hard right practice you hone shit sometimes you play a song and you're like ah and then you play it you're like oh that was pretty good or oh that's a piece of shit I'm never singing that again right right it's like what we were talking about with Elliot Elliot didn't wait till he was in the fanciest studio Mm -hmm. he played what he thought was the best acoustic bathroom basement he recorded a lot of those albums outside of a studio a fancy studio dreamworks records was the first one where he's like walked in like wow he wrote day in and day out cabby yeah okay good it's one i'm glad you got things. it it worked um and this Everyone builds confidence like what you yeah. were telling your young um musicians even musicians who aren't even young, just our rocker babies, you know, this practicing that they did, they, the first night it's like that the they 10, played... like the 10,000 hours you just said. Right, 10,000 hours. The first night that they played at the London Fog, London Fog, <laughs> not one person entered the club. And they, they still sat played. There and played all what they were supposed to do, and... That builds confidence in their performance. And also, if you love it, you're going to do it and you just keep wanting. It's like right. anything. If you love something, don't you want to do it all the time and get right. better at it? That's true. And it became those songs that they were playing at the London Fog and honing and perfecting became their musical epics. 
mm-hmm. you know, light the end and light my fire. They played light my fire at London Fog. Okay. Yeah. If anybody was there of the eight people or probably like, you'll never believe this story. Exactly. I <laughs> In saw... 1965. I saw wow. the doors I at know. London Fog. 1966. Yeah. Oh, 66. 60, either way. You know what I mean? 65, they really have a story. Right. That, <laughs> I wonder what, I got to ask Gary. I mean, I think Gary kind of came in a probably, well, probably after they got to Whiskey Go-Go, but, you know, sadly, Columbia dropped them and the London Fog fired them. Uh, you know, ironically, on the last night of their performance at the London Fog, a talent booker for the Whiskey Go-Go. And by the way, they used to walk down 50 yards to look at the bands play at the Whiskey Go-Go. Oh, wow. They each take turns during their set, you know, like in between sets. Like cause they had, like, like I said, what, 15-minute breaks? Hmm. They would walk down and look and see what's going on at the Whiskey Go-Go on the stage. The Doors launched their career at the legendary Whiskey A Go-Go, a nightclub in Hollywood, California. Johnny Rivers was the first live performer at the club when it opened its doors on January 16, 1964. Within a short time, the club became a launching pad for bands such as Led Zeppelin, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Cream, System of a Down, Steppenwolf, Van Halen, Guns N' Roses and Linkin Park. Over the course of three days in April 1966, the late Otis Redding recorded his classic live album, Otis Redding Live at the Whiskey A Go-Go. In 2006, the venue was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, to see them play, and so, as luck would have it, as you would say, you know, as Oprah would say, <laughs> uh, you know, the talent booker for the Whiskey A Go-Go asked them to fill in one night, that I next night. I these magical, like... Uh, and then they were on a corner. I know. And then they walked in. I know, because Jim played it cool. He was like, well, I mean, we only got one night, but okay, you know. And so he, it, you know, they filled in. It was a success. You know, they packed the house. Um, they became a very popular house band for the Whiskey O Go Go. And believe it or not, um, they would get, I don't know if I put this in here, but I read that they would get fired very often because <laughs> Jim was always doing some shit. You know oh what I mean? Oh my God, it's just such a he funny sentence. They crotch, got fired very you know often. What I mean? He was doing some craziness. And so what would happen when he would get them, when they when the owners would go like, you're fired, Jim, you did something crazy. It would always be Jim doing some mess mm-hmm. he's not supposed to be doing. The talent booker, who was a woman, would get his 14-year-old fans, because he was so handsome and he's gorgeous like a god back then, he was gorgeous, would get his fans who couldn't even, weren't even old enough to get into the club, get them to call and go, Is the, are the doors playing tonight? Are the doors playing? So if you get enough calls, to be like, all right, let's just invite them back in so that they can play. So they never were truly fired. Mm-hmm. I say that with quotes because, you know, it was, you know, the more they became well-known because, you know, their music with his poetic lyrics and Jim, mainly because of Jim, who was just such a sexy guy even then, like rubbing mm-hmm. your crotch against the microphone stand. You know, women love that. <laughs> I love it now if I saw it probably. <laughs> but anyway, doing one of these, you know, crotch, you know, poetically music stands <laughs> nights, you know, Jack Holzman, the founder and president of Electra Records, you know, saw them and was like, you know what, I got to offer these guys a deal because they were all, they were all great at what they did, you know, um, which is one thing I want to say, 
like what you were talking, going back to what you were saying about a band, it's always wonderful when band members know their role, Mm -hmm. you know, and they know, like, I'm excellent at this, like the keyboarders or, Mm -hmm. you know, um, the drummer. And and Jim knew, he didn't particularly take pleasure in any instruments. He might do the little, what's Mm -hmm. the little shaky thing? Right. Triangle? Oh, the uh, the tambourine. He'd do something like that. He'd have a tambourine, maybe. Mm. But his thing was lyrics, and he had such a confidence in himself. Like I said, like his dad was like, you can't sing. And he's like, whatever. But he was a total front man. That was like... Complete front man. Complete from day But that's on. what keeps bands together, too, is when everybody knows their role. If you have everybody... Yeah, you know, it's the too him. many cooks in the kitchen. If everybody mm-hmm. wants to be... The front, you're going to have a really weird band. (laughs) Yeah, the band, you know, they were all great at what they did. Mm -hmm. And the wonderful thing is they all did their role that all made the whole band the doors. Mm -hmm. Somebody that we talk about even to this day. Yeah, and you, like, look at Gabby's shirt right now. That is such an iconic image. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just... Everybody knows, if you're listening right now, you know what the Doors logo looks like. Mm-hmm. You close your eyes, you see the Doors. If you say Jim Morrison, most people are going to know. You are obviously right. know if you're listening. <laughs> right. Or maybe not. Maybe not. Right. But I would say most, maybe maybe the youngins, maybe not. But The youngins, yeah. I mean, because a lot of these people, we've talked about it, and we'll probably be talking about it at the end of this podcast, um, a lot of these people that these youngins look and go, oh, my God, they're so amazing. You know, even Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop saw, you know, Jim Morrison, and that's mm-hmm. where he got a lot of his performance antics from mm-hmm. is Jim Morrison. I mean, Jim Morrison was, like you said, a great front man. But during this time when Jim <laughs> and the Doors, or the Doors, I'm not going to say Jim and the Doors because... It's funny, a story happened where at the beginning of, um, I was reading something, and that one of the guys, an announcer was like, and I present to you Jim Morrison and the Doors. And he came off the stage, and Jim Morrison was like, "Uh uh-uh, you need to take yourself back on up there and introduce us with the right way. And the guy's like, what did I say, what did I do? He's like, it's the Doors, man. It's the doors. That's awesome. So that's what I'm saying, the doors. Um, you know, but the sad thing is kind of during this time, that's when Jim started drinking heavily. That's when he became a heavy drinker, I mm. think, when when he, you know, 1966, around this time. How old was he at this time? So like, Well, he was born in 1953, so he was a young cat. He was about 20, what, 43? 23. 23. That's pretty young. Or 20, yeah, because he was 66 and then... 43 yeah about 23 he kind of did some like cool stuff him and ray probably you know the band probably did psychedelic stuff because mm-hmm. he was so well, that was that time too totally in that time um but this is where he started drinking a lot and you know when they started going into the studio to cut like the end and you know um light my fire he got really drunk and he trashed the studio mm. But the but they kind of did him a disservice, but I don't know if it's a disservice, but he trashed the studio, and while he was gone, the record company paid to have it cleaned. So when he came back, it was like nothing was mentioned to him. 
everything went on as if it's in this beautiful studio that we're in now. Uh, it's like nothing, like as if I walked in here, it's like, oh, okay. After I've trashed it and done like nonsense. I wonder if any of that would fly now. Like it would just. I know, I wonder. I don't, because you know, you don't know what really happens with some of those bigger artists. But. That's true, that's true. And, you know, they recorded the end in two takes only. Boom. Wow. He was that good, and they were that good. and Because they had honed their thing, though. That's why. Totally. Like, you know, they had played this a billion times. Right. So. Right. And you know what? Back then, you may speak to this, is that there was no, you record, and you record this uh, instrumental, and then we come in. They all kind of mm. recorded together, if I remember, oh, from Sam yeah. Cooke. Remember, right? I think you know. they still did that then, too. Do you remember, did you watch uh, Cadillac Records? I, we need to do a show on that but stuff, but just that idea of a live room like I that know, is just that would have been pure brilliant. magic. It is, it is. It would have been brilliant to look at. I even like looking at it on YouTube, and it doesn't feel the same, I guess. Well, it's not the same, but I love looking at it. I just love looking at it, like the Funk Brothers from Motown. Oh, totally. I mean, um, but golden time. I know Jim and you know Pamela. They moved in. Was it? Was the Funk Brothers from Motown? I think it was. But anyway, Jim and Pamela, you know, they moved in together, but it didn't domesticate him. And he didn't spend every night with Pamela, but remember, she was 18, 19 at the time. Oh, yeah, she was a baby. Um, and, but he was quite the ladies' man because we already said he was like a rock god, you know. He was so sure of himself. And like Sam Cooke, you know, and like Miss Gert said, he had diamonds on his thing, you know. <laughs> He made women's thing sing, you know. That so was good. just his thing, you know. And so in 1967, like less than a year later, or maybe a year later, because, wait, he started in January 1966. Oh, wait, less than a year later, um, their first album dropped. That's another thing about back mm -hmm. then. You record an album, it drops in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Yeah, it's not like that anymore. Not like that now. Um, but their first album dropped January 1967, and by the summer, it was like a critical and financial success that spawned the end and Light My Fire, which things that they had been honing all the, yeah. you know, for the last couple of years, and the critics loved it. You know, in his studio bio, though, for the studio PR department, Jim wanted to state that his parents were dead. Really? Yeah. That's so sad. Yeah, he would later say many years, a few years later, that it was a joke. But they were like, are you sure you want us to say to your parents or dad? And he's like, yes, I want it. Wow. It's kind of cold, but, you but, know. I mean, I think with a lot of these stories, too, we kind of forget how, you know, he was like 23 at this time. He was a 23-year-old yeah, punk. A like he was <laughs> You're right, a 23-year-old punk. But he was. I mean, I feel like a lot of kids now, too, like the artists that come out now and everyone's so harsh. Because there's some kids that they're legit kids. Like they're right. like 18, 19, 20. And, yeah. And... Uh, you're right. People forget how young they are, and they might make mistakes and say terrible things because we we all did a little bit of that in our time. You're you know? right. You're right because even when we come back, we'll talk about something he even did. I mean, it it kind of breaks my heart a little bit um, that he did. I didn't like it. Okay, there's some things oh, okay. I don't like, and I didn't like. What so, uh, what did he do? Well, I mean, I kind of hinted about it, or maybe just kind of 
plainly said that he, you know, drank, started kind of drinking heavily during this time. I mean, he enjoyed, he, at first, Jim drank, as he would say, because he enjoyed drinking. He started drinking early in his life, but he said it kind of loosened people up. Um, by this time, though, Jim started getting drunk because he was an alcoholic. Hmm. So, as I said, that's why he trashed the studio, mm -hmm. but that's rock star material, I get it. And so, when Light My Fire burned up the chart, Jim's mother called the record company, and it hooked her up with where Jim was, I think in New York or wherever it was, and he invited her to a concert in D.C., you know, you know, D.C. for a concert, and she agreed to go. But her mistake is she kind of reverted back to being a mom, and mm -hmm. she asked him, she's like, can you just cut your hair for your dad's sake? That's what she said. That wasn't good. Yeah. He hung up the phone and said he didn't ever want to talk to her again. That's so sad. I to know. Not talk for so, that reason. I know. So when Miss Clara came to the concert in D.C. with his brother uh, Andy, Jim dodged her. He didn't never say anything to her. And he, you know, I read this, and I don't know if this is the case, but I read it somewhere, and I, I maybe need to double-check it, but I'm not going to worry about it. But Jim would like, because at one point he talked about, earlier in these performances, he used to say, like, fuck the mother, fuck the dad. Or like, mm -hmm. you know, fuck the mother, fuck the this. He used to have these like lines that he would say over and over again that were very mm -hmm. intense. And he said it would he would say it to loosen him up, mm -hmm. to like really kind of drop all of his inhibition, so to speak. And so he even said kind of those lines during the concert. Mm -hmm. Like while she's standing there, he said like these really intense lines. Um you know, and he dodged her because he said, they said, you know what? He's going to be on the Ed Sullivan show because by this time, Light My Fire, like I said, was like tearing it up in the charts. And so he flew off to Ed Sullivan show, wouldn't speak to her. Um, and I just, I, that kind of bothered me when I read that about what he did to his mom. It's so sad because, like, you know, first of all, of course, idealistically, everyone wants to be like, oh, she should just support him. First of all, this was a very different time, too. It's not like you can't always have your today's goggles on 40 years ago, 50 years ago, actually. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and she and also for him. He was a young man, like, and there's an all, also understanding how young he was and the mm -hmm. level, had he lived to 50, he might have looked back and went like, oh, that was kind of shitty. I yeah, shouldn't I shouldn't have that. been so But, tough. you know, because everyone does, and, but he was young and he was in, like, a prime mm -hmm. and all these amazing things happening for him. And then on the flip side, like, you can kind of see everyone's side, like, he was all obviously deeply sensitive that the lack of support from his family deeply affected him mm -hmm. regardless if their actions seem severe or not that's true that was enough to affect him so mm -hmm. i mean the problem is we're on this planet with all these different people that <laughs> everyone operates some so your differently family. yeah some of your family and some people are really you know they don't understand how sensitive another person is or vice versa you know so I can kind of see all sides, and it does seem very sad, because probably had he lived longer, you know, who knows where their relationship would have ultimately ended up, you know? That's a good point. Because he may have, you know, as you get older, sometimes you do, I mean, I can speak for myself mm -hmm. that I look back when I was 
23 and like, oh God, like, mm-hmm. I can't believe I said that. Or I can't believe, right. you know, like right. it's just, we, we all, all do that to less extremes, you know, yeah, that is the live and learn. And like, if you're lucky enough to grow old, mm-hmm. you can, that's why they say, you know, is I, um, like age with wisdom. It's because mm. something does change in you. That's true. And, and maybe if he had kids, he would have seen like, oh God, what did I do to my parents? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's um, sad all the way around though, because I guess it didn't right. rectify. So that's what's so sad about that's it. That's true. That's true. Um, and so he was right. They did fly him to Ed Sullivan, the band. The doors went to Ed Sullivan, which was funny as hell. Um, so Ed Sullivan's son-in-law, who happened to be the show director, came in when they were at in the dressing room. He was like, hey, 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 yeah, so anyway, guys. So when you say the line, you know, girl, you couldn't get much higher, you know, can you change that? you know, to like something like, girl, you couldn't get much better. And so they all kind of looked at each other and you just know something <laughs> naughty was going to go on. And they looked at him like, sure, sure, sure. We can do that. Yeah. We can come up with another line. <laughs> so they go out there and they sang and sang. And I invite people to go see it uh, on YouTube. And they didn't change one line because they were like, what? Don't tell us what to do. You know what I mean? You know? And I love it that um, his name was Bob. Ed Sullivan's son-in-law's name was Bob. And Bob came up and said, you know what, you'll never do this show again, Jim. And the doors, not just Jim and the doors, but the doors. And he said, hey, man, we've already did the show. (laughs) And he walked out. So good. And I love that. Um, That was brilliant. Um, So the doors, you know, that's where they were awesome about that. Um, in 1968, you know, Jim, he already got into scrapes with cops, as we already know. His drinking accelerated again to, like, as we said, full-blown alcoholism. And did I say alcoholism? I stumbled across that. <laughs> I'm slurring alcoholism. <laughs> and he could be a mean drunk, you know, at an L.A. house party. He and Janice Joplin got drunk together, which have been like incredible to see in a room. See, all the people at that party were like, I remember this oh night. Oh my <laughs> God. And, you know, they had their arms around each other, and Jim pushed Janice's head into his crouch. Okay. And she wrestled free, and he ran to a waiting car, but she, like, went, chased after him and hit him over the head with a bottle of Southern Comfort, Good which he deserved. Her. He totally deserved that. Earn that mess. And in New York, he stumbled and emptied a table of drinks on Janice's lap. I Uh-oh. mean, poor Janice. Poor Janice. God help me. So, I mean, that Jim, he's just a mess by this point. Uh-huh. He's a rock star, um, a messy rock star, but he's Jim. And, you know, I saw another quote. I know I always say that. Ever, Ava Gardner once, say, once said that fame gives you everything you never wanted Mm -hmm. um but there was a critic that wrote about Marilyn Monroe and said fame has a way of dealing a bad hand to start sooner or later and I think that's going to be the case with Jim Mm -hmm. um you know and the one thing about Jim is that he you know during this time by his third album you know he 
loved his poetry. He he loved poetry. And, and the one thing he would say about poetry um, is that he said that his poetry aims to achieve anything. If it aims to achieve anything, it's to deliver people from the limited ways in which they could see and feel. And I think that's probably, even with this drinking and the, the way he acted, all of this was kind of like his art performance type of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm making excuses. I don't want to. Um, but, you know, by the third album, the success had kind of spoiled him with women and money. And he didn't spend money on houses or cars. He spent money on, like, huge bar bills. He paid for everybody. He was a generous mm -hmm. man. Mm -hmm. um, but he also bought, bought, like, custom clothing, like lizard skin coats. <laughs> That's insane. You know, his drinking was completely out of control. Mm -hmm. And he spent time in bars. He never entered the studio unless he had a bottle in his hand. Um, he gained weight. He started gaining weight, a little pouch, by this time. And it came with a lot of hangers-on, you know, who lined the studio while they were recording. I just don't know how you can record like that. I don't know. I mean, again, it was very different time, and I don't, I don't know. It must have been hard for the other members, you know. Oh, probably. You know, you're all together, difficult. and you're watching someone just completely deteriorate. Self-destruct, yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they did love film, so I think, and I think kind of some of this was about rock stardom had hit them so young mm -hmm. that I think a lot of this for Jim is that he was bored, I think, and it just kind of made him lethargic in some ways. Um, I mean, he got back into his poetry writing uh, during this time, and the great thing is they got a great gig, which was at the Hollywood Bowl, and, and they performed there on July 5th. 1968 and they you know sang some of the third album you know waiting for the sun which was released a few weeks later in uh, 1968 but you know hello i love you which was on that went right straight to the top and i think people can watch it on youtube because he's 24 years old with these burgundy looking leather pants on at the hollywood bowl it's really cool um and by the way the album title was changed this is for you changed a lot and one particular title for Waiting for the Sun that they came up with was called The Celebration of the Lizard and it stemmed with his fascination um, with lizards, you know, hits one of the nicknames that he called himself the Lizard King. Mm -hmm. So I think Gabby would appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so they went on tour in Europe and um, like I said he'd gotten back into poetry writing and he met someone named Michael McClure who was a poet and um, he decided, Michael convinced him to, to release a book, publish a book of poetry um, called, under the James Douglas Morrison, mm -hmm. under his real name. Uh, well, his name was Jim, but under his full name. Because he wanted to be taken seriously, I think, like most poets, you know. Um, and, you know, during the American tour, he kind of realized that... Um, I think that's where his frustration started growing with this whole thing, with this whole stardom thing. Because, you know, he would come out, do some outrageous thing, like what we talked about, because he was a mm -hmm. performance artist. And he just could tell that his, you know, words and the music were being overlooked, you know. I guess mm -hmm. it's kind of like probably how a Justin Bieber would feel, or the Beatles would feel when they first came out, and you just hear screaming. Nobody's listening to what you're saying or what the music is about. And I think that 
that started building in him a certain frustration. And because if people were just wanting to do, what is he going to give an outrageous mm -hmm. performance? Let him give, a, you know, they rush to the stage, do something violent, you know, and chaos ensued. But, you know, it just, they expected the wildness. And I think that that started weighing on him in some way. I mean, I definitely think he had an addiction. Yeah, period. absolutely. Case that, closed. Without That's, a question, he had an addiction. Yes. Um, and I think that, like you said, around this time, there does come a point, I think probably as an artist, and I've seen it with lots of other different artists. Um, I even read something about Whitney Houston um, a while ago that at one point she did start wanting to write her song, mm -hmm. write her or at least try, and that she was discouraged from it. I don't know if that was the case, but I did read it. And I think that Because that people want to grow, her. though. Like, exactly. say you're at a job, say you're at a corporate job. Right. If you have one title, like, you start to be, you want another title. Mm -hmm. Like, even if you're, you, that's normal to want to grow. Right. So if you're at the top of your game as a Whitney Houston, you're like, you can sing every song, your mm -hmm. voice can do acrobatics on most people. Right. Of course, you're like, well, what else can I do? Because right. we grow, that's why. And you let know, me try. Exactly. But I mean, that's why, you know, when people retire, they take up like pottery and golfing and all these things they've wanted to do because people don't just stop. Right. Often why like super, super wealthy people become like these, they work more through philanthropy and mm -hmm. stuff like that because we all want to grow and continue. Yeah, I just, you or know. Theoretically it, all. <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> Maybe not all. <laughs> Some. Many. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, it's so funny. At work, I just heard of, like, someone who was, like, had a really high-up position in the company, and they went off and became, like, an intern somewhere. And they said, just always wanted to do it. And they, like, <laughs> were, like, huge up in that's the hilarious. Chain. Yes. And I thought, that's odd. But you know what? I admire that. He just, the person, he just wanted to... Um, be an intern in one particular field. I did read one time that Kanye West went and became an intern in like a a, a fashion house. Oh really? Mm-hmm. I don't care. How would he one. deal with anyone telling oh, him know. what to oh, do? Oh my god, he must have been a nightmare. <laughs> that oh, was probably god. like a forty-five second intern. It was exhausting. <laughs> oh my god. Um, but anyway, getting back to Jim, <laughs> he was particularly pissed in January nineteen sixty-nine. Um, before, it, right before Madison Square Garden shows, he did fly into New York, you know, and uh, he was mad, you know, because while he was in London meeting with Michael McClure, the poet, um, the owner of Electric Jack and other members of the band had given the okay to use Light My Fire in a, a car commercial, in a uh -huh. Buick commercial for $50,000. And he found out about that stuff. He was fucking pissed because he was like, what happened to the veto power, guys? You know what I mean? What happened yeah. to that? You know, and he accused his bandmates of making a deal with the devil. And he said, if you if you even think about moving forward with this, I will bring a Buick car onto the stage and I will smash it with a sledgehammer. <laughs> and it was like, okay, I guess we're not going to do that Buick commercial. It's so funny, though, because it's totally different now. Like, now everything's like... As you're drinking oh, your water, yeah. it's like I a know, Coke, right? and it's Everything. like putting on your glasses, you're like, check your out my Ray-Bans. Yeah, everything. <laughs> Speaking and of which, check out my Ray-Bans. <laughs> <laughs> 
you would put your headbands, your ray, oh, headbands, ray bands. God help me, ray bands on. <laughs> Which one do you want to put on? <laughs> the GoPro? No, I'm saying the GoPro. GoPro would be great. Um, as I move over and play with my Gibson guitar, okay, yes, right here. <laughs> yes. Okay, is that a Gibson guitar right behind you? Oh. Taylor, we like you too. Yes. Oh, yes. Taylor Gibson. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We filmed at Gibson and they were kind enough, kind enough to let us film there a week ago and our rocker babies were up. There's uh, many guitars in here. Gibson, Taylor, all of it. Uh, <laughs> and we're back. And we're back. Um, but years later, it's funny because that whole commercial, with car commercial, would would haunt them a bit because in 2003, 22 years after Jim's death, the same situation reared his ugly head. Cadillac offered the band a record-breaking, like, $15 million to use Like My what, Fire. One five? One five. In what year? 1969? 2003. Oh, 2003. Sorry. I was reading 1969. Yeah, no, it's fine. It, it $15 was, um, million. Dollars. $15 million. I would not say no to that. Robbie and Ray said yes, but one said no. John Dinsmore said no. He said, you know what? Um, Jim would have said no, and I'm mm. saying no for Jim, and I'm saying no for me. He also alerted Jim's estate. Um, wow. It turned ugly in five, four, three, two, one because um, the Dinsmore, uh, Dinsmore and Jim's estate ended up suing Robbie and Ray. Oh. Um, and then Robbie and Ray countersued, saying they were being hamstrung by them and they were being prevented from making a living as a musician. And because I think that they tried to also, Robbie and Ray tried to have a band that had a play on the doors. Where I, I can't remember the title of the band, but John Dinsmore got mad about it. And yeah, I mean, I respect this, and I'm torn by this on both sides. I know, right? Well, because right? it's like also 40 years later. I mean, I get... Right. I, I have mixed emotions about both of this. I'd have a really, really, really hard time seeing... Mm -hmm. No to fifteen million dollars. Also, if I was dead, I'd be go have it. I don't need money up here. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. Are you giving me permission? <laughs> Are you killing me <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the podcast? <laughs> Scott might do something in your sleep, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it became a six-year feud. I mean, John Dismore wow, wrote a book about years. it. Yeah. So getting back to February twenty-eighth, nineteen sixty-nine. This is okay. This is gonna get good. Here we go, rock a baby. So. On February 28, 1969, Jim saw a performance by a radical theater group um, named The Living Theater, and their performances were all about engaging the audience and like dialogue and talking about events of the day, so to speak, and it, it even baited the audience if necessary. And Jim loved it. He loved it. I mean, at one point, he saw this performance on at that night, February 28th, where the actors stripped and, like, stood in the aisles. And when the stripping kind of reached, like, the legal age limit, um, they yelled, I'm not allowed to take my clothes off anymore. And the cops moved in and stopped the play. And this uh -huh. incident inspired him immensely because 
a couple of days, maybe actually the next day, he went off to Miami because they had a show in Miami. And here we go. So much so that um, his crazy bud and the rest of the band members were, they were in Miami and uh, he got drunk. He showed up to that Miami concert like an hour or so late, drunk off his ass. Um, and, you know, the band was like, you know what, he's here. He's like barely standing up probably. And so they were like, let's just go out there. Let's just do it. Let's just start playing and get him on out here. So they started, band started playing. It's kind of like had that Titanic feel, I guess, you know, the band's <laughs> playing. Uh, and so he went out and started doing some performance art shit. He started like yelling stuff out talking about rub your toes in the ocean down here in Miami, let's have a good time, some performance art type of stuff. Um, while the band played the song, like they were just playing song after song, mm -hmm. um, he sang two lines and then he started running off his mouth and talking kind of crazy, you know, real rock star shit, mm -hmm. you know. The crowd went bananas. They kind of liked it, you know. Cause then he, but then he's kind of started unbuckling his belt, oh. and so Ray called to one of the roadies, Vince, and said, "Oh my God, get out of here and keep him from doing that." Cause he called him off. They're playing like no mm -hmm. other, like no other. So Vince comes out and keeps him from, you know, unbuckling his pants. And then through all this craziness, somebody else that's in their entourage or in Jim's entourage hands him a little lamb. So he's holding like a little lamb in his arm. So the little lamb, you see the lamb is sitting there in the picture going, what the hell is going on here? And I remember Jim saying, <laughs> he said, you know, he didn't mess with the lamb. He didn't do anything to the lamb. He just held oh, it. Good. But he did say when he was holding it, you know, the yeah. lamb, thank God the lamb can't fuck, can't, can't, can't speak English because he said, you know, guys, I'd fuck her, you know, but she's kind of young. And I... <laughs> I did laugh when I saw that. And the lamb was just sitting there like, what the hell is going on oh up in this God. joint? But that's what he said. He, you know, it became a joke and everybody's laughing because he said that. And even he removed a cop's hat, tossed it in the crowd. Everybody's laughing. Ha, ha, ha. He danced with the girls on stage. Everybody's having a good time. And something happened in that confusion, and then he left off the stage. So then, uh, you know, within the next day or so, politicians, cops, people started getting involved and saying, you know what? He whipped out his dangalane. That's what they were saying. He whipped oh, out I his dangalane. I mean, Ray Manzarek, you know, his bandmate said years later that it didn't happen. Mm. But, um,. He was charged. Gabby was, says it happened. I believe Gabby. I think face. it happened. Well, he admitted to it a few, <laughs> a couple of years later, a year later. Jim was drunk, and he admitted to it to a few friends. Okay, I have a question. Yeah. Interestingly enough, brought up yesterday. Um, yeah. I was talking to a friend, a couple friends, about so when there is nudity at a show, it is a private event, so people have paid to go see that private event. So is that public indecency? 
Yes, because it's a public event. Yeah. So this is the whole thing. Last There's night I was like, because there is, is there. some artists. There's a, quite a few artists yeah. that have gotten naked on stage. Right. And then there was that god-awful theater show called Puppetry of the Penis. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with that? I don't know. I never What's saw it. I just think like, it's so... I can't imagine going to pay money to watch that. <laughs> anyway, oh. interesting that this came up because it's just we were talking about that and it's like, well, right. if it's a private event, is that still public indecency? It's not private. I mean, it's public. I mean, it's public because the public is there. But think about it. What if there's a 10-year-old kid there? That's true. But I just, I guess I was assuming that people were 21 plus. Yeah. But I mean, right. I'm sure at this yeah. one there were a lot, but you don't know if there's a kid there. That's true. You know, when I went to see Bruno Mars, there were kids in the audience. Mm -hmm. And if he started weeping out his ding-a-ling, that'd be a problem. I mean, it wouldn't be a, be a problem for me, for sure. but <laughs> for the kids, it probably would be. <laughs> in this situation, you know, he was charged with like a felony lewd mm -hmm. and lascivious behavior. Um by exposing his pee-pee, and they said he shook it. They said he shook it. He did simulating acts of masturbation upon himself. That's what they claimed. I don't know if that happened. Mm -hmm. That I don't know if happened. But even the FBI charged him because he just, he left. He didn't know any mm -hmm. of the stuff was going on. And they were like, well, now we're going to get you for unlawful flight. I mean, it mm -hmm. went bananas. It went serious in 5, 4, 3, 2, And he one, was probably right? on a lot of stuff, too. Yeah, I mean... The Not defending that behavior. Right. I'm just saying he probably. Really? <laughs> 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 Not defending. <laughs> but it's okay. It's Jim. <laughs> um, but the you know the funny thing is these charges nearly ruined their career overnight. Wow. Overnight, the group was banned everywhere. All of their shows were canceled. You know their shows were yanked. Um, but I interesting kinda... choice. <laughs> Um, but anyway, anyway, <laughs> I think that the experience kind of made him grow up because he, you know, he, like us, he was very juvenile <laughs> up to this point, kind of juvenile when I give you another example of his butt, um, but you know, he was juvenile and so this kind of like, oh no, this is some real, this is like real, for reals, because mm. it was like those charges carried like time, like years in jail. Wow. Um, so he was like, oh, snap. But it kind of gave him a chance to kind of walk away a bit because they, they really tied his hands. Um, he published his book of poetry in, like, 1970, which he was proud of. So it kind of gave him a chance to kind of step back and kind of look at things. I mean, they were eventually went back on the road because even through all this, they were extremely still popular. Mm -hmm. I mean... I mean, before even 1970, they were out there doing certain shows, like in Mexico City. They played in Mexico. He toned down his performance at that point. He didn't do so much outrageousness that he was doing. He didn't, you know, curse. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't do the same nonsense. And oddly enough, from what I read, the shows were actually better when he cut out the mm -hmm. obscenities, when he cut out all the rigging around and this and that. They said his Shows got way better. That and makes they, sense. Yeah, I mean, he kind of... Focus on the music. Focus on the music, yeah. They played Mexico City, which, you know, Mexico City loved them. They had loved them for years, and they were treated like royalty down there. And he, they deserved oh, wow. it. You know, those guys mm -hmm. were treated well. Um, and he seemed back on track, you know. He seemed back on track, mm -hmm. Michelle. 
uh, wrong. <laughs> wrong. So I oh. read this, and I think I told you about it earlier today, and it made me laugh, and I couldn't help myself. But oh, I love this story. <laughs> on a flight to Phoenix to see the Rolling Stones. Now, he had this huge charge hanging over his head. Huge charge from Miami hanging over his head. And him and three members of his team, not the Doors, but three members of their their team, you know, um, people of their staff, um, decide to go see the Rolling Stones in Phoenix. And so they decide to get all liquored up off of beer and Cavassier before they got to the airport. So when they got to the airport, they got on the plane and they just acted like straight fools. <laughs> um, when the stewardess stated that her name was Reva, somebody from his team, not Jim, yelled out that your old man must be called Old Man Reva, kind of a take on the Old Man River song. And they started singing <laughs> Old Man Reva on the plane. I thought, I did laugh, you know, because I thought that was it's funny. It's pretty funny, and it's pretty it's innocent, pretty, too. It's like. pretty creative, I think. I thought that was creative, because when, when I started hearing them singing in my mind, it made me laugh. Yeah. But she wasn't laughing. And then someone went to the bathroom, I think it was Tom Baker, and came back with some soap. I guess back then they had bar soap in the in the the on the airplanes. And he dropped, like, soap in Jim's drink. They did food fights. And so Jim whined and pushed the button and was like, he dropped the soap in my drink. And so she was like, oh, God, calm down, guys. All right, let me go get you another drink. She came back with the captain of the... Um, airplanes like guys calm the hell down and so then they just kept acting like fools so much so that when they touched down in phoenix they were arrested again <laughs> Real? Oh, wow. and charged with being drunk disorderly and interfering with a flight that's pretty bad that's that's bad um but you know sad none of this booze and all these arrest charges stopped them from kind of making an artistic comeback because you know, during this time and all of his nuttiness, all of his alcoholic craziness, he actually wrote some very innovative songs for the album Morrison Hotel, which they released. Mm. And it, it was a critical hit. Like one critic called it the most horrifying rock and roll I've ever heard. Wow. And when they're good, they're simply unbeatable is what he's talking about, The Doors. And um, he thinks it was the best record that he's ever listened to. Um, it's amazing that even in all this crazy, I'm always amazed though, even with Elliot, even with Sam so far, and even what Gary's told us about that people come up with such amazing artwork when they're going through like some of their worst, mm -hmm. you know. That's and, kind of often the case. Mm. It's like, and then their music goes to shit when they're all happy and good. That's true. <laughs> Not right? all the time, but. That's true. Sometimes. You know, I mean, you want to know what happened with his legal troubles? His Phoenix legal troubles. I mean, the, the stewardess reversed her testimony and all the charges were, against, charges were dropped against Jim. But that didn't stop um, Miami because Miami was coming and that was 1970 in mm -hmm. June. You know, the weird thing is before he went down to Miami, which was in August, he went down to go to trial for those lewd acts and all that. In June, he exchanged vows with one of his girlfriends, Patricia Kinley, in a oh, Celtic yeah. ceremony. It wasn't legal, but he did it because he was kind of fascinated by the ritual. Um, and he still had his main squeeze, Pamela. 
She was still his main squeeze. Um, That's crazy. I know. How um, did she stick around? I'd be like, I know. Oh see my ya. God, he was a heartbreaker in every respect. I mean, he drank, he passed out, and played endless games with your heart. Mm-hmm. He just, he was, he was a trip. I mean, maybe because he was a rock star, maybe so. Yeah, but I guess that would keep them around. But yeah, he didn't stay really around with. Um, Patricia as well. I mean, in August, uh, he went back to Miami to go to kind of go to trial to kind of face the music, so to speak, regarding whipping out his his penis incident. He was found guilty of two <laughs> so of the uh, <laughs> of the misdemeanor. I know misdemeanor mm-hmm. charges. He was sentenced to six months in jail and fined five hundred dollars. He never served a day in jail because his lawyer filed an appeal like immediately, Mm. which allowed him the opportunity to remain out of jail. But, you know, it's funny. Ironically, in 2010, those charges were, were, those convictions were pardoned by the state of Florida. Yeah. Wow. You know, it was, he was pardoned. It's kind of funny. One of the governors, when he was leaving, he's like, we should pardon Jim Jim uh, Morrison for this. Wow, that's crazy that 40 years later they're... Isn't that incredible? Yeah, Yeah, I love that. Um, In the midst of all this trial in August, right before he went down there, Patricia came to Miami because she was pregnant with his child. Oh. You know, and he, being Jim Morrison, played little games. He, you know, didn't see her until he really needed to see her. And he was honest with her. He said, you know... I'm not ready. I'm not in the mindset to be a dad. You know, he didn't really beat around the bush about it all. He said that, you know, a baby is gonna, not going to change his lifestyle. He's still going to do everything mm-hmm. he's doing. He said, but it will change your lifestyle. It'll alter you forever, you know. And I think she came, she came to the conclusion, and she wrote a book about it, I think. She came to the conclusion that she had to have an abortion. She aborted his kid, but uh-huh. he made her a promise. He's like, I'll be there for you and I'll pay for it. And needs to say, he might've paid for it, but he wasn't there for her when wow. she had it. Yeah. So there's a couple of events that came up that really threw him into a, a bit of a, a, it's sad because in September, 1970, a month after him going to trial or uh, Jimi Hendrix died, and mm-hmm. then Janice died. I know, they died a month October, apart. October, yeah, 1970. And this kind of threw him into a funk. He supposedly got drunk and said, you're drinking with number three, is what he would mm-hmm. tell people. Um, and, you know, he and Pamela, by the way, by the time, you know, this marriage thing to Patricia and the baby thing, he and Pamela had fallen out, but until October... They uh, reunited, and they mm-hmm. kind of enjoyed a lot of domestic calmness, you know, up until, you know, January and February. And, you know, he was, they were back working on the um, another album. Um, and he finished that next album, you know, with the group, and he decided to go on a sabbatical in, like, February, March, like late February, early March or something. And Pamela would say that this would be their most idyllic time together mm-hmm. in Paris. Uh, I don't buy it. You don't buy it? No, because she was still doing heroin. Oh, yeah. And he was still drinking, you know. Well, she might not remember what it was like. Exactly. <laughs> and we can't ask her now. Damn. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I read is that, you know, at first she used to keep her heroin use 
from him because he she didn't think he would approve of it. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but you know we get to the part where he's over there in March and July 3rd he's dead. You know he that's died. That's crazy. He technically was number three. He technically was number because that's I mean that's less than a year. Less than a year. Yes. Like, you know, nine months later, it's crazy. I know, it's sad. It's crazy. It is. It's very eerie, too, that that whole... All 27. Of, all 27, all within a very short period of time, and all of these brilliant people that we still talk about today. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're going to talk about his death. I just put it on this mm-hmm. outline because, you know, I, on the other ones, I kind of separated it from the outline, but I think this one's interesting to put on there because it's short and shady at the same time. Um, we'll never know the true story because poor Pamela died in 1974 of a heroin overdose. And oddly enough, also 27. 27, yes. God bless her. A couple her. years later, but mm-hmm. it's just... You know, and she took a lot of these answers with her to the grave because, okay, here's some details. We'll, we'll go into it. According to Pam, she left him to relax in a bathtub. You know, uh, it was like the early, early morning of July 3rd, um, maybe, you know, between 1 to 3 a.m., I guess. Mm -hmm. And then she woke up at 6 a.m. and realized that he wasn't in bed. And when she went to go see him, she found him submerged in water with like, she would say, a smile on his face. I don't know. She thought he was playing a joke at first. And then she realized, oh, my God, he's dead. And she shook him. And when he didn't respond, she called the police and and fire department, they arrived too late, she said. His body was, you know, left in the apartment, which is crazy because you wouldn't take him to the, um, take him to the hospital to be, you know. It was just funny, they kept him in the apartment and they wrapped him in plastic and packed it in dry ice. That's so weird. You know. And it's super creepy. It is creepy. And her and a friend, you know, made funeral arrangements. Here's the deal. She hasn't called his parents once during this time. Wow. Hasn't called his bandmates during any of this time. I mean, three days later is when the undertakers delivered the coffin that they said was worth about $75, U.S. dollars at the time. I don't know what it'd be now, but... I mean, still it was seventy-five dollars. I, I mean, a doctor, and I'm putting that in air quote, visited the apartment and signed a death certificate. Um, but Pam couldn't remember the name of the doctor. Now, how how would the doctor not know to come? You know, hmm. so she couldn't remember the doctor's name. The name on the birth, on the death certificate. I said birth certificate. Death certificate is illegible. So we don't really know who the doctor was or if he was a doctor. Whomever it was, they gave the official cause of death as heart failure. But every you're going to die if your heart if your heart stops. If your heart stops, you're dead. Yeah, there was no autopsy. None. And so, uh, you know, there was no autopsy to even back up what truly happened to Jim. Um, And to make a sad story, you know, sadder. Um, by the time that Doors manager Bill got there, and he was young himself. Everybody's young. Everybody's 27, between mm-hmm. 23 and 27 here. Um, he arrived from the United States, and he found a sealed coffin. So he arrived wow. three days later to a sealed coffin. I don't even know if Jim was in that coffin. Wow. And a death certificate signed by, allegedly, by some doctor that you don't know who it was. That's so crazy. And the day after he came, 
the body was buried at the famous uh, French uh, mm-hmm. cemetery, Pierre Lachaise, right? Pierre Lachaise. Pierre Lachaise. Pierre Lachaise. Um, on G- July 7th. Uh, so Bill never saw the body, and none of his, his family wasn't there. To oh, see so him sad. off, his you know his bandmates. I mean, so you know, the bandmates and, weren't there either. No. Wow. You know, and Bill came back to the states on July 9th with Pamela, and he gave some statements saying, "I've returned from Paris where I've attended the funeral of Jim, and I can say he died peacefully of natural causes." You don't know if he died peacefully mm-hmm. or of natural causes. Nobody knows. That was six days. After his what are natural death. causes at twenty seven? I know, like that's you know this this was a Kickstarter because this these details kickstarted the questions mm-hmm. that would kind of plague the whole his whole death. That's why they call it you know I consider it being shrouded in mystery because you know you know there was no police investigation, there was no autopsy you don't know who the examining doctor was why were Jim's parents told oh and another thing is Pam lied reportedly lied to the American embassy and said that Jim had no immediate family which allowed for a quick no questions asked yeah wow there wasn't even a priest no there was no priest and Ray when Bill got back he said how do we even how do you even know it was Jim in the coffin. Mm-hmm. It could have been 150 pounds of fucking sand, is what he said. Wow. You know, some fans think that he faked his death. Some think that he was murdered by the government because they were all, mm-hmm. you know, Jimmy, Janice, and him, you know, and Jim were married, murdered within yeah, a Yeah, within of a months. year of each other. Yeah. Well, within nine months of and, each other. And they were considered the leaders of... Uh, they were considered the leaders of the counterculture mm-hmm. movement, so to speak, with their music. Yeah. You know, 30 years later, a manager of a nightclub came forth and said that, you know, Jim had actually overdosed on heroin in the bathroom mm-hmm. of this nightclub. And that they, the two dealers who sold him the drugs, took his body and dumped it in the bathtub at his apartment. Oh. But, you know, I, you just don't know. I mean, that sounds plausible. Anything, I know. Mm-hmm. Anything, yeah. I mean, I saw it on a, a, a TV show where they talked about that that was one of the, mm. the um, you know, he the, the only thing is is that he might have snorted it because Jim hated needles. He didn't like yeah. to be, like, you know, kind of like Elliot. They didn't like needles. Um, but afterwards, Pam tried to, you know, establish that she was his common-law wife in order to get get control over his estate because Jim had his lawyer draw up papers in 1969 um, where she would be made the sole heir. He did uh, make her his sole heir. Um, and that was two years before. So. It was two years before, and his brother and sister were made heirs if she died. Yeah. Um, however, his estate was frozen, you know, over for many years. And various litigations with paternity suits and yada yada yada. So much so, the sad thing is, right before she was died, she was awarded sole heir, mm-hmm. um, but she left no will and she died. Um, so her, did anything go to his brother and sister? No, because her parents came out of the woodworkers and go. I think with the brothers and sister, it had to be if she died, it would be like six months later or within a certain time period oh. that they would become the sole heir. And so 
being that something weird happened, she died, and his parents, his, no, I'm sorry, Pamela's parents came forward and said, you know what, she didn't have no will, so we're taking over her portion of the estate. Oh. She was a sole heir. We're going to take over it. And his parents then said, nah, not now, you know, not so fast. Mm-hmm. How do we know she was the common law wife? Mm-hmm. How do we know? They started asking those questions, and, you know, their, their children were the other heirs to the will, mm-hmm. right? So um, there was a lot of legal wrangling over his estate, um, and it went into court a few times uh, for a few years until both families settled with an out-of-court settlement, mm-hmm. and reportedly they split everything 50-50, but the Corsons, her family, Pamela's, walked away with the rights to like manage and control his image, That's music, insane. and royalties. Yeah. That's insane. Yep. And I read somewhere that her dad didn't even like him, you know, that her dad kind of blamed him for the wrong turn that his daughter took because she was so young, Mm -hmm. I think, when she got with him. But, you know, I since then, um, and I think Jim's parents were fine with that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They they got paid, you know, because it was their son who did Mm -hmm. all the work, you know. Um, But... It's funny because um, I was gonna say I think his parents died in the two thousands. Mm-hmm. Like like his mom died. Jim's mom died in two thousand five, and his dad died in two thousand and eight. Um, and I think one of the cursons, the dad, died early, but the mom, her mom is Pamela's mom is still alive. She's like ninety or something oh, like that. Yeah, she. Gotta be up there. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, his dad did give him his due. Like, I, mm-hmm. I read the the quote from his dad, um, you know, a few years later after Jim had died, he recognized that his son was um, a genius and that, you know, he said, his dad said, I've never listened to any of their songs. <laughs> he said, he said, but I recognize he would, you know, he owned himself. You know, he you have to respect that he went out there and lived his life. Yeah, that's so way. sad, though, that it has to happen after someone passes away. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, just who didn't knows? didn't understand it. Music, you know, was his generation. Mm-hmm. He said that he went to a, someone, I think a friend of the families who studied Greek and stuff like that and asked him to come up with something that mm. would, you know, he said my son, you know, he must have gave him, you know, example about his son and that's why there's a Greek inscription on his gravestone about being true to himself, mm. knowing himself. That's his dad. <sighs> his dad did that for wow. him. Wow. And again, as we end another episode with a very, very similar message yeah. that we don't even intend this. It just happens yeah. every single time. It's one that of the themes. Yeah, just that the message and from, you know, Jim Morrison's dad to, that he honored that and, and that he was himself, that mm. he actually, for whatever you think of his artistry, if you like him, if you don't like him, if he's your musical god, it just, it, it's inspiring for anybody who is themselves and, and does something with it. Whether if you're if you're famous or not, you know, like if you've decided to do some thing that's you and put it out there, even if it's for your cats to watch, I think that's impressive. It is. It is. And, you know, that's a good point, because if you think about it, that's what's so it's so inspiring, you know, looking at Jim Morrison's life and 
all of these, you know, wonderful people that we're going to be really talking about. We talked to Gary last week. He was true to himself, I think, in mm -hmm. a way. I mean, you know, it does go down sometimes a self-destructive path. But, you know, even with Sam, it is about, at the end of the day, being your authentic self. And really kind of, like you said, you don't have to make a million dollars or go mm -hmm. out there to play at the Whiskey or Go-Go live like there's no tomorrow and I think that's a positive thing maybe not become a crazy destructive drug addict but right. you can still do some pretty cool creative stuff right. without that right you you're right you don't need the alcohol or anything as you know I, I mean you can have a glass of wine um, but, <laughs> but you don't need um to go all out to be you because you're perfect just the way you are everybody is enough Oh, that's Everybody a great way is to end enough. it. Everyone is enough. You are enough. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you everyone you. for listening. This is uh, this has been really fun to do this, and thank you Gabby and Melissa. And this is really fun. And uh, until next time, rockabies. For behind-the-scenes looks or more information or just to be part of the conversation, please join us at www.rockabiespodcast.com. 